0: Verse 1, chapter 2, the book of Genesis. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all the work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work that He'd done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field yet was in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And the mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground Verse 7 Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it was divided and became four rivers. The name of the purse is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havalia, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Chapter 2. Let's ask the Lord for His help. Father in heaven, we thank You for another day in Your house, on Your day, with each other. Lord, we're privileged beyond measure. We ask that You would use this time as such to glorify Yourself, but to teach us to know more about You. And Lord, may we be careful to thank You for these things in Your name. Amen. Well, a summary of these things, only because we're not going to touch on each one of them today, but they'll bleed over into the weeks to come. Uh, We read over the creation of man and woman. That was kind of given in a list of things in chapter 1. We had much more detail here in chapter 2. Uh, We're introduced to the Garden of Eden with abundant resources, with rivers that feed it and irrigate it, uh, along with a list of natural resources, including gold, uh, a description of some trees. Uh, We see the first prohibition, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do that, you will die. Now, all that will shake out in chapter 3, beginning next week. And then we've got um, the task of naming the animals uh, that Adam was given, and then we see there at the end the first human relationship, specifically relationship of man and woman. Now the, the goal for today is not only to talk about the image of God, that's where we'll spend most of our time, but also uh, to try and, and, and understand what is meant by fill the earth and subdue it. And from these two things, we're going to try to understand at least the basis for not only the dignity of humanity, but also its purpose. If we can do those two things, I think we'll be in great shape to start next week. So a good way uh, to begin, I guess, would be to ask the questions, in in what ways are we different from all the other animals on the planet? There's lots of animals, but there's only one human species. You could ask... The reciprocal of that question and learn some things too. What do we have in common with uh, animals? We have some things that we're like in that category and some things that we're not or we might use the word exceptional. One thing is for sure. I I do believe we're the only creature on the planet who sits and scratches its heads and tries to figure out what on earth we actually are. I don't think animals do that. I've, I've, I've never... Come up on them and wondered if they might be thinking, What's their purpose in life? Or do they have dignity? Or are they just trying to find what they're going to eat next? Usually that's it. I, I used to keep bees once upon a time and never found them goofing off or just talking amongst themselves. They were busy all the time, every day. They've got a purpose. And it seems that's the same. Uh, planets do what planets do they're not even living they abide by the meticulous laws of physics that were placed on them at creation but mankind will try to figure itself out or figure each other out or figure out the big questions where did we come from where are we going why aren't we there yet that's really what the children ask you have to grow up a little to get past that question but uh The Bible answers this question in a very vivid and complex way, though the components are not complicated themselves. But at the heart of the answer to these questions is the idea that we were created in the image of God. That's what makes man different than all the rest of the animals. And we'll spend our time uh, time trying uh, to put a finer point on that idea. In Genesis 1, that was last week, And uh, the 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 first three weeks, actually, Uh, plants, trees, all the animals are created after their own kind. That was a repeating thing you saw just about at every turn. Once you got to day three, four, and five, after their own kinds. Also, we saw the phrase "God said," and that went for all of the days. God said, "Let there be light." Or let the expanse be separated from the land. Or let the land bring forth animals or the sky birds or the sea fish. As if it was that space and its raw elements that God used to give rise to these created species. But that is not at all what we see when we get to Adam. Uh, There was no let the earth. There was no according to their kinds. Humanity is the only life form in all the creation narrative that doesn't sit underneath those words after their own kinds. And God said, let. But at the same time, Adam and Eve are not totally unlike these animals, uh, even the fish or even the birds. They were created on the sixth day just like the other animals were. Uh, Humanity breathes oxygen like animals do. Humanity eats, reproduces like other animals. Adam's body is made from dirt, material available on the earth, just like the other animals seem to be made of. If we die and decompose, we turn back into that dirt. But God speaks, if we're studying what we covered already, about the plants and the sea creatures. He describes them. And then he speaks to the sea creatures and the birds, blessing them and commanding them to multiply and fill the earth. But with humanity, he adds this subdue and rule over all the other creatures. I'm putting you in charge of them. That's different. None of the other animals uh, seem to be arranged in classes. Okay, well, you know, we just don't find in our scriptures that the lion is the king of the jungle. You know, we read that in books, but there's nowhere in Scripture that says that he's in charge of that. All we see, as far as anyone being in charge of anything else, it would be mankind, and he's in charge of all of it, it seems. So God speaks about these things. He speaks to them, but when we get down to chapter 2, we read that not only does God speak to Adam, but he speaks with Adam. We kind of left that hanging last week, that with all this... Uh, authority given to mankind to be fruitful and multiply raise their children cultivate things build things run governments there comes authority as well that really comes into place in chapter 3 but we're beginning to see portions of it when this human created in God's image is able to communicate with him and vice versa so, mankind is made in the image of God, in contrast to being made after their own kinds. And second, as such, human beings have a God likeness as part of the image of God, but it's only a likeness, not deity itself. So, if we're going to take it a step further, all right, he's in the image of God, what separates humanity from all the other life forms on the earth. And along with that goes. Fill the earth like the rest of the animals, but control or subdue or rule the earth. With this image of God, and we read over that, let us make man in our image. There's something different that the animals don't have. Something that is part of God that he gave to us that he didn't give to them. But there's a place where that stops. We're not gods ourselves. We're not deity But we have his image. There's something about us that reflects who he is. So you could kind of think your way through uh, all types of ways perhaps to illustrate this. Uh, In the ancient world, when these things were written sometime after they actually happened, this was revealed to Moses. But there were other nations in the world. There were at least the Egyptians that we know of. We keep reading through Genesis. There's thousands of years covered. Uh, When people began to organize themselves into groups or governments and then there was authority structures with kings, they would use that term in their own languages as being the image of God, which is a way to say, I'm his representative. I have the authority. I can tell you what to do. I'm in charge. And it was in every other worldview Uh, not the many, but the the few. In this case, we're reading that God gave this image to every last human being, regardless of their size, their shape, their color, their intelligence. It's standard equipment. Humanity made in the image of God. Um, And as such... The image of God, whatever exactly it means, and and we'll come back to this many times, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what that component is. So if you're just going to, you know, uh, draw one of those exploded parts lists of the machine known as humanity, okay, point to the image of God part. Well, maybe it's not a body part. Maybe it's your brain. Maybe it's uh, electrical signals. What is it? Where is it? How is it? None of that is explained specifically in Scripture. But it is clear that it's not something that humanity performs then presents to God expectant of a reward. Like, hey, if you do things right, you can achieve human dignity. But you're going to have to act like a human and say not like an animal. That's not what we're told here at all. Uh, It's presented to us as a gift and last week we talked quite a bit about the gratuitous nature of our universe, that God made it because He wanted to, not because He had to. It's a gift. So when God's making animals and fish and birds and humans, as a gift, He decides to give humans part of His image because He wants to. It's a gift. Keep, keep that in mind because it, it, it's going to mean something. The implications of this one thing are probably as far-reaching as any piece of theological truth as far as understanding who we are and who God is. Think of it this way. If it were possible to earn the image of God, let's say it's not a gift but it's earned, then it would make sense that perhaps it could be lost as well. And if it could be lost or earned, then maybe not everyone earns it. Some do, some don't. If dignity comes along with the image of God, that would mean that there are some humans that are worthy of dignity and some humans that are not. They haven't earned that yet. Or maybe they don't have the capacity to ever earn it. See, the the trouble with all other ideas of human exceptionalism, when I say human exceptionalism, that would just be What most of the world agrees, though, in some universities, they're going to argue against it. But we all deep down know a human being's more important than an animal. We're exceptional in some way. There's a big difference between all the others. There might be all the way down to the amoeba and then, say, uh, to these animals of very complex abilities to communicate. Maybe like uh, the, the big whale. You know, there was a story written about a white one. They can actually communicate across the Atlantic with this mechanism made out of bone in their heads where they basically click, I don't know, Morse code to each other. Very sophisticated brains, but not human. Humans are exceptional. But any other way of thinking through that without a divine creator, you basically have to assign dignity and worth to the level of humanity that that one achieves. Uh, the, The technical term for this is a host capacity. Human beings walk around, but they have the ability to host or run programs on their system that are quite exceptional. But the chilling reality of all of that is what about those with, say, mental disabilities? Or the very young or the very old Uh, our newborn a month old now she can't take care of herself totally dependent on the rest of us absolutely totally helpless now if we're going to call our exceptionalism a host property then what's the difference between my helpless baby and say a helpless puppy Given enough time, my helpless baby should learn how to talk and walk and think and do math and all these other things that the puppy will never learn how to do. But at what point do you assign dignity? Is it based on quality of life? You've got an incredibly fuzzy figure to try to figure that out with. And don't think that this is not the very basis for the horrors of what history learned through the Second World War. With probably what the world would have recognized as the most exceptional nation of humans. Who determined that it was efficient to take those that they thought less exceptional than them and process them like we would process animals, keep what we want and throw away what we don't. That is horror of all horrors. But in a certain way of thinking, it made sense. Unless, of course, you've got a God who stamped His image on all of them. They're sacred in that way if they're nothing else. And they glorify Him by just walking around as His creation. Massively different worldviews we're looking at here, having everything to do with what we define as the image of God. So there's that sober reality. What do we do about those if we don't have a God who gave us a book named Genesis? So these may not have the right to the dignity and perhaps protection afforded by being human if we're working off anything other than the image of God. Genesis, again, does not explicitly name what it is about humanity that makes us in the image of God, but repeatedly emphasizes that this is a feature of creation, not an achievement. As such, humanity as status is not dependent on performance or expression of this or that capacity, but is universal as created in his own image. That is the basis for the image of God. So, before we move on, there's one other thing that I I thought worth mentioning, and um, I think it might be very helpful, but having to do with the image of God. Take those terms and split them in half. Take the God part and the image part and separate them. We'll start with the image first. Take the term. The fact is, in the image of God, we're not ourselves God, or it wouldn't work like that. Um, let's say that you create something, you write something, maybe you have musical inclinations, you compose a piece of music or something. Um, It's reasonable enough to believe that that song will never become you or your book never becomes you. There's a massive divide between the creator and the creation. Okay, So if we're made in the image of God, rationally, logically speaking, we can't be God. We're a reflection of Him. We have His image. Some part of Him, He's given to us as standard equipment, but still He's God and we're not. That right there should make sure that none of us ever think too highly of ourselves. It's a great way to keep us Our feet on the ground, right? We're made in the image of God. That's a great thing, but we're not God. We're below God. In fact, the scriptures say we're below the angels, but we're above the animals, right? We know our spot. Image of God tells us we're not gods unto ourselves. It reminds us that we're not the final court of appeals in questions regarding our identity. That's a big deal these days. Someone's Identity. I identify this way, that way, and pretty much uh, the way the culture works, you are in complete, total, autonomous control of your identity. You decide what it is, and then you make sure that the rest of the world applaud you in doing so. You have to do that for them, though, as well. That is not at all what the Scriptures tell us. By virtue of being made in the image of God... There's like this big C there that stands for copyright. (laughs) He owns all the rights. He gets to say. He made us according to his definition. Back to last week with the pile of Legos that hadn't been put together, the Tohu and Bohu Lego bin, right? You make the thing, you get to say what it is. So this, yes, keeps us humble, doesn't mean we can't improve ourselves or cultivate ourselves. In fact, we're told to do that, but within a certain boundary that doesn't exceed our understanding of taking God's place. We're made in His image. Does mean that I do not ultimately own or define myself, ultimately speaking. I'm one of a kind, yes. I have an identity unlike anyone else's. But at the end of the day, My ultimate identity goes back to the image of God. On the other hand, that we are made in the image of God, so less focus on image and more focus on God, keeps us from thinking too little of ourselves. I don't care what happens to you, where you wind up, you're still made in the image of God. There's nothing on this planet that can... Remove that from you. You'll always be fearfully and wonderfully made on purpose, not because God had to, but because he wanted to. So image of God keeps us humble, but keeps us from despair as well. Not thinking too much, not thinking too little. Uh, Think of the most beautiful thing in nature you've ever seen. I was thinking of this when I wrote that down. I think probably the first thing that just blew my mind, something I'd never seen before, quite like it. Uh, I might have been 12. But we flew to Florida. I'd never flown before. That's going to be cool. But it wasn't. It was pouring down rain, cats and dogs. Uh, I think we flew out of RDU. Rain, rain, rain. And I got the window seat and kind of fought for it, kind of appealed to, you know, the firstborn stuff. I get the one to see. I did get a one to see. And there's nothing to see but rain. But when we punched through the ceiling, I didn't know that's what it was called. That's what the guy on the speaker said. The sun hadn't set yet. You would have thought it had. And it wasn't far from setting, and the clouds looked like this uh, really plush pillow top that no mattress company could ever pull off. And it had the sun on one side of the pieces, and it was dark on the other side, almost like a purplish, dark blue. And the sky looked different than it usually does. It got really dark up above, darker than it should with the sun up. It should be light blue. It was dark. And there was... It was weird. There was like there was stars already starting to show. And I just thought... We've flown to a different planet or something. It's (laughs) totally not what I expected, but it was gorgeous. Uh, Remember climbing that, I think it's called Sharp Top at the Peaks of Otter, where you got a 360-degree view of of all the the mountains there, Appalachian Mountains. Uh, I remember sitting in a kayak in the Gulf Stream in Florida, watching the sun go down so far it just looked like an abyss. And then hooking something and seeing it so far down there and bringing it up and just... Water can't get any clearer than that. It's amazing. Now, y'all could take turns. You could trump all of that, I'm sure. Those of you who've done lots of traveling. Point is, none of that bears the image of God. But you do. Now, if he's going to go to the length to make that stuff... And then put his image on something, but leave something out—less glorious or awe-inspiring. I think it's the older you get, and the more people you know, that you just—the world becomes that smaller place, but at the same time, got gigantic because there's always something new. There's a new person that acts a different way you've never met before. All of this has God's fingerprints all over it—the image of God is the great equalizer. And in that regard, every last human being is the same. Not to think too little, not to think too much. And I did write down, this is C.S. Lewis. This is Narnia series. I think it's Prince Caspian. But he's speaking, and I don't even know the context to remember exactly where it's found. But he says, and this is said a lot, he refers to... Uh, Daughters of Eve and sons of Adam. That's his way of of Aslan describing humanity, right? And Aslan, of course, is the Christ figure in these these fictional uh, stories. But he says, you come from the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, and that is both honor enough to raise the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. I think that well said. Good stuff for kids to read. All right, let's 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 take it a step further and go from the image of God. We'll hang on to it, but let's add, fill the earth and subdue it. God gave the one command to both the plant and animal kingdoms that he also gave to humanity when he said, be fruitful and multiply. That's, that's the first thing that was ever said that we're to do. Animals too. Increase in numbers. Uh, I've... I've read not so long ago that uh, some of our developed countries are in a bad place as far as birth rate or fertility as they call it that we're not replacing ourselves now some places on the earth are I think worldwide it's like 2.3 something that's just barely over you know replacement but This one command that God gave only to humanity and not any of the rest is fill the earth like the animals, but to subdue the earth, rule it, organize it, build with it, have fun in it, go fishing in it, eat the fish, eat the deer, Uh, not necessarily whatever you want to do. but. To glorify the Lord in, in working. And what, what's strange to me, interesting at least. When you get to verse 5, we read over this, but I wanted to read it again. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. We'll learn a lot more about that when we get to Noah and the flood. And there was no man to work the ground. So this goes back to the creation week. And uh, it's interesting, that last phrase, there was no man to work the ground. It's kind of interesting because it's a statement of the obvious. Because at that point, no one was doing anything because nobody had been created yet. So why state the obvious and say that there's no man to work the ground? Unless the point is to convey that the world was made on purpose to need some work. And that man was going to do it. Now there's a lot of jokes, bad theology, You may have heard it said that if it hadn't been for Adam and Eve's fall or Adam letting the woman do the talking for him, all kinds of nonsense, that sin would have never happened and we would have never needed to work. That's not true. He's told to work the garden and keep it before sin ever enters the picture. We were designed for work. We were designed to organize a world that could use... uh, I don't know, some improvements. And he still called it good. But when you see, I don't know, like those uh, birds I was talking about last week from the nature show that'll put a pile of like pink flowers over here and a pile of white flowers and a pile of round rocks and a pair of different color rocks, and they're organizing things. And You walk through and go, whoa, somebody did this. Or you see a house, somebody did that. They don't just grow out of the ground that way. Uh, God meant for us not just to have dignity and worth, but also to have a purpose. And as early as the record of Genesis, I think we're reading about it right here. Um, God created a world in a state of to be worked from the start. And I think that's inherent in all of us. Maybe not all of us as much as others. um, When you've got... Back to talking about kids the other day. If you got more than one, one probably leans creative, the other orderly. But I remember for like a few Christmases in a row, one of the things the kids wanted were these little, uh, it's like a fossil kit. It looks like a dirt clod and a wrapper in a nice box that says Smithsonian or something on it. But you get a few of these little tools, something to scratch with and something to brush with, but you dig up. Uh, these plastic jewels. I'm like, are you kidding me? Smithsonian's going to put their name and it's a fake gemstone? Uh, I think you get like one real fossil. looks like one of those little... Um, looks like one of the centipede things is all over our driveway this past week. Uh, but they'll smooth it down where you can see the different pieces inside of it. But for the most part, it's just garbage. If they had a... a like a jar of that plastic stuff for sale. It would sit there and gather dust if you had the option to dig it up, and it's a surprise. And every Christmas, we'd put the beach towels on the table. They're the only ones big enough to contain all the dust, you know, and they're grinding through all this to to dig it up, right? I think that's probably a micro-whatever of our human experience. We, We want... To dig in the dirt and find something. We want to saw down trees and, and cut lumber out of it. We want to paint it a certain color. Uh, maybe we just want to write about what we see in nature. But there's a purpose to this. And then we can take Adam's uh, task of naming the animals uh, as an example. In Genesis 1, God names different aspects of creation. Uh, the words God called or he called are repeated five times. Uh, He's the one that called uh, light, light, and darkness, darkness, and day, day, and night, night. Um, But when we get to this portion, it certainly could have been easy to write, and God said, let there be, and he called them each by name. But anything living, we have no record in Genesis 1 of God assigning a name to any of it, other than their general category, fish, birds, animals, creepy crawlies. But here, Adam names them all. His task falls right between the unconstrained creativity and passive rule following. So you got another thing in balance here. It's not that he said, okay, uh, I made most of the animals. You make some too. He didn't do any of the creating. But then neither did God say, here's a spreadsheet. Um, There's exactly this many names and exactly this many animals. Just uh, figure out which one you see best. He allowed him to be creative. Uh, but at the same time, God's the one that did all the work. So he's planned for his human in his own image with dignity to have purpose in improving the place. Um, so the world is neither signed, sealed, and delivered with everything named, nor a meaningless flux where, uh, okay, I, I, I made the dog, but do doesn't have any eyes yet and doesn't have any feet. You decide if you want two legs or four legs or one eyeball in the middle. or It wasn't that. So at the end of Genesis 2, Adam and Eve are living in the Garden of Eden, enjoying God's blessing and obeying God's commands to take care of the garden, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But by the time we turn the page to chapter 3, everything is going to change. Uh, we're we're going to learn that Adam will not live... Until he has loved. We'll look a little bit about that first. And this is not good that Adam be alone. And did you notice that God says it's not good that man be alone? And then he gives them the task of naming all the animals. As if Adam needed to learn every one of these animals has someone, there's someone for everyone except for you. You don't have a counterpart a help-meet. It seems to scream this complementarian idea of they aren't apart what they can be together. And if this world is made for improvement, it seems this man is made for a relationship. Sad thing is, one of the very first things to be damaged by sin when it enters the picture Is the relationship. At the end of this chapter. That weird statement. They were both naked. But not ashamed. So the relationship. As it is. Everything out in the open. And at complete ease. Like the relationship with the Lord was. After sin gets into the picture. It's all going to get complicated. And shame will abound. And uh, well, we'll leave most of that for later but in this picture before sin enters he's loving he's giving himself away to the other the relationship seems to be described as as being a permanent one but before we get into next week here's what we're left with this week and this is what we take home and it's not complicated the image of God gives us dignity and everybody's got it no matter who you are where you came from Socioeconomic uh, intelligence quotient, it's all the same. That changes the worldview of the Christian in a way that is unparalleled in any other religion. Um, It gives us all of our notions of, um, even down to something that sounds absurd, like just. War. There's a reason to protect some from others who don't see it that way. Again, we've got time to get into some of these things. But the second is, fill the earth and subdue it It gives us our purpose to be creative. Like the God who made you was creative, he expects you to be creative as well. The world was prepared expressly for you and to improve it. And everything was good except for the little independence of Adam that God fixed with Eve. A relationship at perfect ease. God the original matchmaker. But I think that's a lot there. It might not seem like a lot. But any of you want to think your way through a world where dignity is relative? Only certain people get it. Um... Sitting in a hospital room, looking over your loved one whose life is reduced to just maybe even breathing on a machine. And there's a lot of science and opinion behind that, that that is a waste. Those days would not be lived if they were not ordained by God and ordained by God means they serve a purpose if only known to Him. Why would a couple pray and hope and finally learn that they're expecting and lose the child? And we're not even going to get started on what the world thinks about where do we assign dignity and we talked about how even scientists know you you get two cells they get together and then they're four and then they're eight it's on a continuum from there genetic code is there and present but without this without the image of god we're at a loss to assign dignity what do we do with it who gets it who doesn't with this everybody's got it all the time they're all eternal That'll be big when we get into, okay, now it's all broken to pieces because of sin. Well, God's going to come put it back. How's he going to do that? He's going to send his own son. Well What does that mean? Well, he can do it. He's not an image bearer. He is the image of God. All of these things come together. And then purpose, good grief. All the noise in the culture as to what our purpose is. And finding purpose and finding meaning. And where, where do we get that? And who gets to say? Maybe I'm just middle-aged, working on a little bit of, uh, I don't know, curmudgeonness, Or I'm just lazy. But I'm tired of trying to figure out what makes me happy. The happiest I think I ever recall being is when God is biggest and I'm smallest. And most of those times we're not happy to be alive hurts a lot in that spot. But there's this mysterious balance of joy in the middle of sorrow. How do you, where do you find that and how do you explain it? I, I think it's stuck under the image of God somewhere, somehow. There's a purpose to it all. So, yeah, it might not feel like much to blow through chapter 2 on the way to chapter 3. But we've got in our pocket. We have dignity. We have purpose. It's because God made it that way. It's his gift. It's the way he wanted it. And we're the recipient. So that said, let's us bow our head in prayer. We're going to sing here in a moment. But before we do, let's ask the Lord to seal this to our heads, our hearts, and our lives. Father in heaven, thank you for Genesis 2. Thank you for the creation account. Lord, thank you for telling us even before there was a man to to tend a garden, you had decided that's the way it would be before you breathed life into the nostrils of a lump of clay or dust, you had decided it would bear your image. And Lord, we thank you for the freedom this gives us to look at humanity, not better or worse, but as an equal. Lord, we thank you for dignity and what it means. Lord, we ask you to help us In whatever respect you would so choose. To fight for that. Where it lacks. And Lord we thank you for our purpose. Even if it's with children around our feet in our home. Raising them up. To know the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Lord whether we're in a delivery room. Or a funeral service. It's all your gift. And Lord, we thank you for it. Would you bless us next week as we, with courage, look on our sinfulness and explore the damage and the problem, along with the trouble that we all find ourselves in. And Lord, would you be merciful to show us that ray of hope that one day a snake crusher will provide the way home, back to the garden, and fully understanding everything you meant by what we read that you said. We ask all this in your precious and holy name. Amen.